So welcome to this week's episode of Be Too Boring, the podcast for B2B marketing professionals. That is anything but boring. This week, really pumped to have a different viewpoint coming in from the agency side of the world. Um, with over 20 years of experience in media planning, brand marketing, direct marketing, marketing. Uh, Genesis is currently the head of B2B and was formerly the SVP and managing director over at Initiative. Um, he oversees the team over for business account efforts currently. He's also serving on the Initiative B2B advisory group, which services customers like Salesforce, Amazon, Intuit, Sigma, and KPMG. Genesis has held senior positions um, at brand companies and agencies such as Bluebeam, Omnicom, and in Interpublic Group across his um, pretty significant career. So welcome, Genesis. How are you? Uh, I'm really good. I'm glad to be here, actually. So uh, it's good to see you. Awesome. Well, before we jump in, tell us a little bit about Initiative and the work you're doing there. Yeah, Initiative is uh, part of a holding company. It's a media agency uh, that is part of Interpublic Group, traded on the New York Stock Exchange as IPG. Um, uh, uh, initiatives have uh, been around for quite a few years. Um, our sister agency is Universal McCann. Initiative has clients like you had mentioned, but in addition to the B2B brands, Nike, Global, as well as Lego, um, um, Constellation Brands, uh, which is a, a beverage CPG company that owns Modelo. So there's quite a few, just a small sample of all the global clients initiative have, has. So, and I'm based in Los Angeles, but our global headquarters in New York City. So that is initiative. Awesome. Yeah, some really sweet brands. I would probably, I'd like to retire on the person who manages the Lego account personally. That's <laughs> yeah. Goals. Um, they do a lot of awesome stuff. So They sure do, yeah. yeah so you, you've been on the media agency side of things. Um, you know, in demand for roughly 20 years, right? You know, how have, yeah. you, seen, how have you seen the AG, agency world kind of change since you first started out? Well, you know, it's, um, you know, I've, I've worked on the client side, the brand side, as well as the agency side. And on the agency side, I've worked for media agencies, as well as digital agencies, as well as advertising agencies. So when it comes to uh, marketing advertising services, you know, I've seen the full gamut from advertising to tech, obviously now media. So um, it's changing a lot. Um, and I think it's reflective of how business has been changing just generally, just you know, for the purpose of this conversation, I'll be general, but across many industries, they're going through a lot of transformations and they've gone through different phases of transformation. The biggest one was obviously when the beginning of my career, uh, when the internet, early 2000s, really just came to explode. And then the, the next generation of that was obviously mobile. Uh, as a uh, 5G, 3G, 4G, 5G technology uh, increase. But what I've seen a lot specifically uh, in the agency world that I think maybe your some of your listeners might take note of is, is there was a lot of separation between creative and media, especially when the holding companies started you know, investing and buying in these companies. So on top of that, uh, the digital agencies like Razorfish, who I used to work with, uh, digital only, critical mass, you know, website design, those type of things uh, were very separate. So uh, in the early 2000s, you saw a lot of digital separate, media separate, creative separate. Fast forward to 2023, uh, media agencies are, um, you know, being, you know, obviously media advertising and tech companies are being absorbed by large holding companies. 
but you'll see digital agencies completely go away, you know, in terms of uh, they're just being, you know, integrated into an advertising agency, which I think it should be, but they were separated for the longest time. Um, they were con converging on, and media as well. Um, the reason why media is integrating now with creative is really because of really the on the client side. There's a lot of particularly tech companies and tech and telecom companies that are finding it cumbersome to manage 15 different agencies in the area of media, submedia, and creative. Um, and it's just not tenable. Um, in this day, of a day and age of where there's potential automation, and I know we're, we'll be talking about AI maybe later, that's what AI is, it's automation. It, the promises of automation basically can be achieved by AI. And so um, I think a lot of agencies are responding where creative and media and tech have to come together to provide one solution across many different campaigns, but there's basically a very small number of project managers that uh, the clients will want to um, uh, manage, you know, to not take up their time, speed, Agility is extremely important, access to talent as well as automation. That's what clients want from agencies. And that's what agencies are trying to basically deliver um, fast. You know, some agencies are slower than others, but that is the direction. You think the consolidation has been good um, or still kind of up for grabs? Still up for grabs. I think consolidation is difficult when you have different parties that have been independent and separate for a long time. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, obviously challenges regarding just culture integration, but even practical process integration, you know, this is where, this is how creative is developed and, uh, this is how media will bring it to life. And this is how technology will create an interactive component to it with a lot of great measurement. That sounds easy when I say it, but when all these desperate teams, either within the same holding company or not, when they try to do that together, um, it's uh, it, it's difficult. It's, it's needless to say, and a lot of it has to do with culture, processes, personality, and also even accountability. You know, different agencies have different types of accountability. Unless that's really kind of directed and evened out by the client, there's going to be a lot of uh, headbutts, if you will. So, and that's that's really common, actually, rather than a seamless integration at this point. Almost like sales and marketing alignment. Exactly. Exactly. Everybody's going yeah. towards the same, everybody's swimming down the same, but everybody wants to get there in a different space. And it's usually just, and it's usually correlated to KPIs, right? You know, when it, right. everybody runs towards KPIs and if the KPIs aren't aligned across all segments of it, then you have your silos and your battles and your channels, you know? So you mentioned yeah. it earlier, um, but you know, obviously, generative AI is creating a lot of questions across revenue teams, sales and marketing teams, et cetera, right? Um, mm -hmm. you'll, um, you know, what's your vibe for how, what type of impact it'll have on the agency world, just specifically given its ability to create, you know, content by a prompt versus, you know, will some of that creative work be replaced? You know, those are, those are my questions in my head. How do you, how do you see it? Well, it's interesting because, um, I mean, if we just take a step back for a second and just look at AI and the history of AI, you know, just five or six years ago, the, the main bulk of AI work was a lot of facial recognition that you would say on Facebook, even things that you use on Waze, you know, directional type of, uh, uh, you know, kind of assistance, that's AI as well. Natural language generation, natural language processing, that was the advent 
really a precursor to what they call now gener generative AI. Um, so we've seen an evolution, you know, from AI being used in commercial applications for quite some time. But now with this new term generative AI, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, what's the word? Uh, maybe it's a branding issue because when people, I think from my standpoint, when they talk about generative AI, sometimes I think they're talking about discriminative AI. And sometimes when people talk about discriminative AI, they're actually referring to generative AI. So discriminative AI basically is, you know, a lot of your listeners probably know is, is more machine learning. So that, that so producing um, a statistical analysis of prices versus demand based on 1200 Excel, you know, documents that, you know, an insurance company has basically, and it spits out a forecast or a natural language summary basically of, you know, of the data. So that's more discriminative AI. The output is forecasting, basically it's uh, analysis, those type of things. Generative AI is basically as you, which has taken the, you know, cake, you know, in terms of, in terms of attention with chat GPT is producing an image, producing basically a sense of, you know, a copy, um, you know, it's uh, obviously in the chat G G GPT world, it's a chat bot. So, so yeah, so how I think it's affecting, you know, agencies as well as brands, I think it's interesting. One is I've come to learn that a lot of agencies love using chat GPT, but the problem is actually the prompts. Um, so there's even new jobs. If anyone, um, on, you know, the listeners out there are interested in it, if you just type in prompt engineer, you'll get a hundred thousand job listings at between 85 and $180,000 a year. Uh, so people, so prompt engineer is a new role that's surfacing. Now, when agencies use chat GPT, getting the key thing for them is getting the right output and getting the right output is actually asking the right query, the right questions, which you might seem as easy, uh, but it's not. Um, uh, so, you know, if you're basically looking for tonality, you're looking for style, write me a uh, write me a jingle uh, for a carpet company in the prose of Shakespeare, right? So that it can do that. So, so really depending on, so the output and the quality of the output is highly dependent on your prompts and your query. Um, so what I'm seeing a lot is people developing sub applications for AI to create the prompts to be used for things like ChatGPT. That's a huge thing. Um, uh, now, right now on the agency side, it's a little bit of a novelty, you know, in terms of creating content or creating copy for an ad specific. It's a bit of a novelty. It's not more enterprise wide. However, I'm seeing AI, generative AI, ChatGPT or BARD, for instance, Google BARD, to be used to develop concepts. So, um, if there's looking at, you know, kind of high level concepts, you know, the big, big level ideas type stuff that would be attributable or impact specific audiences like, you know, doctors or construction workers or business decision makers, high level concept ideas. I'm seeing a lot of, of, of course, with the right prompt, but I'm seeing a lot of um, usage in that way. And I still see usage in actually creating copies specifically for titles and headlines for emails, as well as ad copy. But um, right now there's not a burning kind of fear that it's taking over anyone's job. 
And and I think the agencies as well as even the creative people that I work with see this as a tool. It's basically they're no longer using a typewriter. They're using Microsoft Word. They're using a word processor. That didn't replace their job, obviously. But I think their perspective is this is a tool. Um, this could basically uh, make me focus or help me focus on higher value tasks. Why maybe mundane or procedural tasks can be taken care of by AI. Um, so it makes them, in fact, more productive and potentially even more job security as well um, by having these tools. So um, so their perspective on it just generally is different than I think how the press reads about, well, it's going to eliminate all human beings, yeah. uh, their jobs and things. So I, I, I find it like for me and I in the, in the creative parts of my role and just in some cases it just it serves as like a almost a starting point right yeah. Yeah. Like we all have those moments where you know you have to do something creative you have to write something you have to speak somewhere you have to you know step up in front of a group you know all of that and you know you have that moment where you're staring at the the blinking you know the blinking screen on the mic on the document where you're just like you're completely stuck on where to start. So I've I've been leveraging it for like, you know, just give me a five things that a B2B marketer um in 2023 needs to is thinking about. And then I'm like, okay, you know, like just just to get my brain flowing. And then I found that that those initial prompts are like, okay, cool. Now I'm running with something. And then it becomes my own from there. So that's where that's my yeah. favorite application, you know, and you know, and some in some cases just like I've used it like, like, you know, have you ever had that where you don't know how to finish an email, right? Yeah. yeah. You, don't, you don't know how to finish something like how, what's like, what's the best close here? Um, mm -hmm. yeah, like those, so simple applications have been my favorites. I, I agree. I think, I think it's a really exciting time to, it's a really exciting time to just, you know, like leverage those tools. And I think we're quite a bit of time away from job replacement, which is, you know, that obviously, you know, most of, most media is driven by negative narratives, right? Because that's that's what drives clicks. That's what drives engagement. That's what drives all of that. Um, yeah. but, you know, it's it's fun to it's really it's really been interesting. So, yeah. And once everyone has AI at some point, um, then there's really no advantage at that point. Everyone has the same. Remember, you know, you know, many years ago when when uh, there was a transition over to let's say Microsoft Word, you know, in, in Microsoft Office. There was a few companies that adopted adopted it slower than others, but now everyone uses it, so it's not an advantage to have basically a Microsoft Office suite because everyone it's ubiquitous now at this point. I think AI is going to follow that same path, you know, at, at some point. And from generative AI to to finish off that point, um, it's still good for things like the you know, use case you had mentioned about finishing off an email or you know you know ten ad copy lines that you're you know you're kind of developing. But when you launch a 10,000 email campaign um, for, uh, for you know, in a CRM platform like Pardot, for instance, an automation thing from Salesforce, and, you know, 20% of those emails go to new prospects, 10% goes to current customers, it's for retention, um, you know, 30% of it goes to a lead nurture program, right? When you start, and there's subdivisions, and if you do A-B testing against that as well, um, there's an A-B testing, three or four A-B testing against kind of current customers for retention engagement or even a win-back email campaign, right? When you get to those numbers, generative AI becomes less easier to use, obviously, when it comes to, you know, mass enterprise usage, you know, currently. But I think there's there's some companies out there that uh, most likely will tackle that in the future. But anyway.
speaking of the the mass application, right? You know, we all we all know brand is a pretty key element in marketing strategy and driving long-term demand. But in, in the B2B space where you kind of specialize in initiative, it's often um, hard to showcase that ROI for executives who, who can't make that connection between brand and demand over the long term. How can marketers yeah. best do that going, you know, now and in the future? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a perennial um, question, a debate, I should say, actually, about how much to invest against, you know, demand and brand. I think, I think LinkedIn, you know, I think they recommend 60% brand, 40% um, demand gen um, slash lead generation as a part of demand gen. You know, that's kind of a guideline. A lot of companies have, uh, I know certainly, Mike, the companies that I work with on the B2B space within the IPG initiative world, the, the, the splits are all different, that type of thing. But the debate remains, you know, um, how much and how little should we invest in brand or demand gen? I, I think that it, it all, you know, a lot of it has to depend on, honestly, how strong your brand is. So, um, so there are some companies like Salesforce and Amazon, you know, um, you know, Intuit, for instance, you know, which is, you know, you know TurboTax um, is one of their products. They have strong brands. They built them over over the you know over you know the years. Um, but even then, you still find you know those companies investing in brand because they see the value in it, right? Um, and it depends on how how strong your brand equity is. I always measure brand equity as if I'll go into a grocery store and they don't have Heinz ketchup, I will walk out of the store and go to another store to get Heinz ketchup. I'm not going to get Del Monte. I'm not going to get. So that's brand equity. I will walk out of the store and go to an, another store. Um, and basically get Heinz ketchup because that's my favorite ketchup, right? So that's obviously brand equity. You see a lot of brand equity in the B2B space. Some people obviously are are hardcore Mac fans. They would never touch a PC. Some people are huge AWS fans as well. They wouldn't use another cloud solution. So it, it really depends on how strong your brand is. But um, And on the demand gen side, uh, demand gen has less to do, I think, with marketing which again, it has something to do with marketing. I don't want a bunch of people yelling at me. It has less to do with marketing, but more about sales. Um, and you said earlier, you know, there's there's always a there's always a debate between you know marketing and sales, you know, going back and forth. And I could share you know my quick thought on that. But people characterize this as a brand and demand gen debate, and in fact, it's I don't I don't think it's much of a debate. I think people understand that. Um, building a brand over a long period of time um, actually helps demand gen. Um, you know, stronger brand equity, which I mentioned earlier, provides larger deal sizes, shorter sales cycles. They stay around longer. A stronger brands like Nike, I'm no, it's a consumer example, but they can raise their prices, whereas a, a no-name brand has to stay low in order for them to get any market share. So if you can control prices in your particular segment, that's the fastest way to profitability. You just increase the price. There's no marketing spend. There's no product innovation kind of additional spend. You just raise a price and you get closer to profitability or, or over profitability for that matter. So, um, so that's, that's what I think. But in terms, of, in terms of demand, so that's what brand does for demand gen. The issue with sales and the dark, dirty truth is, is that, so when I worked on the client side, um, we we would work hard with our marketing plans or media plans to develop the best leads. We throw over the leads 
um, to the sales team. The sales team says, great, we tried these leads out, um, but they don't work. Can you do something better and send us a new batch of leads? But I'm finding that when I look at and investigate the situation, I think a lot of salespeople, especially if they get a lot of leads, you know, 500 to 800 leads a month, let's say for marketing, they'll check the, the top five, maybe 10%. And if they don't convert, they just throw the whole thing away, basically, which and then they just say, hey, marketing, you guys need to target better. You need to you know, provide quality traffic, quality leads to me. The shame about that, unfortunately, I think it's very common because I'm seeing that I'm not going to name companies, but I'm seeing that across the board, not even when I was on the client side. Um, um, but this, the shame about that is that when sales kind of do follow up specifically with um, with these leads thoroughly um, and they get the no's and they get, you know, reasons to the no and even some yeses. It would be terrific to have that information be given to the marketing team and the media team. So to give guidance on what's basically working or not working, right? That feedback loop doesn't exist. If a lot of sales team basically don't, you know, they don't do the thorough vetting. Um, and then, so there's a blame that sales says, hey, the, the, the leads aren't converting. So you guys are doing something wrong in marketing in terms of targeting, get us another batch of leads. And then marketing blames sales saying, you're not following up with all the leads and giving me feedback that I need to basically improve my campaigns. It is a circular, circular issue. Um, anyway, I hope I provide yeah. some feedback. Around, it's been battling around in my head for about 17 years, you know, but which is <laughs> an interesting your point is interesting, right? Should demand gen, right? Like paid demand gen be a function of sales and not marketing, right? You know, because obviously if the leader of the selling organization is on the hook for the paid demand gen budget, I'm pretty sure that person's going to be pretty damn well sure that they're going to follow up with those leads because yeah. they have up to that versus pointing over to another group and saying, these leads aren't great, you know, your fault marketing and, and passing the buck, right? Which I think was to be candid, the original vision for the CRO role, right? But mm -hmm. what happened was the CRO role just became a fancy title for VP of sales, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and in fact, CRO should oversee both marketing and sales. I mean, yes. it's it ideally that's how it should work. A yeah. fraction of the companies where they have a CRO. I mean, I can't yeah. tell you how many companies have a CRO and a CMO. So, like, yeah. those are competing concepts, right? Like, yeah. like, Unless the CMO reports to the CRO, and that's a lot of C's to report into C. Like that's all that. So like, that's yeah. where I've always I think that the whole purpose of the CRO role was to was to have a single layer of accountability over that go to market process, right? Right. right. Without right. so like one when one person's on the hook for the whole go to market, like they're on like if if the leads that they're paying to be generated are being pushed back by sales. They're not just stuck on saying, oh, it's their fault or their fault. It's it's they own it. So I think like the path to true go-to-market success is a singular leader to handle the revenue team. And, and to your point, right? I think future looking forward, right? You're going, you're you're going to see organizations will have a marketing organization that is very much brand PR, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. Like call it creative, if you will, social. Mm -hmm. PR creative building that, and then you're going to have a a go to market organization that handles really like you know demand to close right that that quote 
that whole full function, including some of the paid media, including SEO, which means, you know, if you're a, a sales leader right now, you should mm-hmm. be educating yourself on SEO and PPC and et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a marketing leader, you should be jumping into sales, you know, sales methodology and follow-up best practice and all of the different challenges, all of that, right? Because I think that's the future, right? Like having a single go-to-market leader um, that handles both that the demand side of the house all the way to the close. Cause I think that's where you'll see most success. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm trying to, um, because I don't know if or when, you know, that transition would happen, but I'm a big fan of having sales have a strong voice in the demand gen programs, at least if they don't own the program with the demand gen program, then I want them to at least have a solid voice um, about what they're looking for, the audiences they're targeting and what's converting, what's not converting, because you want to take what's converting, create a lookalike audience against that and basically blow it out (laughs) as much as you can. But at the same time with marketing and branding, um, I I wouldn't basically diminish the importance of that. I think salespeople uh, as well as SDRs and frontline sales need to understand that someone's twice as likely to fill out a lead gen form or sign up for a webinar or sign up for an event or sign up for a free trial or sign up for a phone appointment with frontline salesperson if they have been exposed somehow to the brand. You know, the air coverage of uh, display ads or linear broadcast or, um, you know, you know, digital social, you know, social, you know, uh, display, whatever twice as likely for someone to basically click on or respond to some sort of call to action from a company that actually had a brand impression that was that was exposed that was presented to a prospect that sales and demand gen could capture later down the road so that's what they also have to understand as well i think there's there's mutual understanding about the importance of both groups so two, two fav- my favorite two favorite metrics there that i think helps has helped me quantify to executive peers and and, and previous bosses etc is organic traffic to your site right mm-hmm. and volume of organic searches right uh, like mm-hmm. if how how if, if 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 each month you're seeing a steady uptick of people typing into their search initiative right mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. to be marketing agency right that's where that's where you can start measuring your brand impact everybody says that all the time how do i measure brand like that's a key that, that's one right there right or how many people are coming to your site from those organic searches and the, mm-hmm. those those referral searches yeah throughout my career i measure a few things and so i measure obviously the performance of paid search as well um, and a little slide kind of note, uh, side note is Google search, obviously a powerful and paid search for Google is powerful. What we found a lot of success in is Microsoft Bing, um, you know, sometimes overlooked about the fact that it's the second most powerful search engine, but that's still millions of people. Right. Um, and also you, you can really negotiate better rates, but anyway, I, I digress. Performance of paid search also um, is important to know during a period of time to help measure brand. Organic search, uh, of course, as well as uh, traffic to your website, but more particularly, actually, net new user traffic, meaning people who've never been to your website before are now visiting, measuring that week over week, right? So that's extremely important. So search volume, paid search statistics, as well as obviously net new user traffic to the website. And the fourth that we do that's a little bit not necessarily in real time, but at least it gives you the measure 
uh, brand uh, attraction, I guess, if you will, or brand performance is unaided and aided awareness that many different companies do a survey-based research, whether it be YouGov or whether it be Comscore or Nielsen. Uh, we, we do that every quarter to measure basically unaided and aided, aided awareness. Unaided awareness actually is when um, you know, during the survey that people haven't been exposed to your brand before, but know what it is and what it stands for. When you see changes in that for the statistically significant audience, then we also, I guess, you know, have a good idea of creative and creative placements actually doing its job. So I would say those four key things are the the, the key things that we look at. Interesting. Brand. Yeah. Interesting point you made on Bing as well, too. Yeah. A lot of, especially in the B2B space, a lot of companies, B2B buyers, you know, their companies use the Office 365 suite. The standard search engine lockdown with SSO is Edge, right? Yeah. That you can, you know, and if you're on Edge, you're, the, the standard search is going to come out of Bing. So from a B2B perspective, it is a really solid tool on that point, a really solid point. That's it is. A- 90, yeah, 90% of companies use Office. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so that's, yeah, I was, I'm glad you said that because that's the secret sauce. I mean, the fact that they have competitive pricing, but the fact that they have a, for a B2B audience, um, for a B2B audience uh, working either at home or in the office, has the office suite included in their package. It's a natural, some people switch to Chrome, you know, like intentionally, but majority of people, when they basically click a link from their email, for instance, or from a PowerPoint presentation or Word, it opens up Edge. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but so there, there's the the paid search opportunity as well. So hopefully that's a little tidbit for your listeners. I know, that's a big win. So let's talk campaigns. You've done a lot of them, right? Client side. Yeah. Side, mm-hmm. right? That's the, you know, so I'm sure our user, our listeners are, are really pumped to hear about your most creative, non-boring campaign, right? You know, why'd you love it and did it work? So, so yeah, I will give an example from a company uh, that I was the, the global demand gen, director of demand gen called Bluebeam. It's Bluebeam, exactly how it's spelled, bluebeam.com. Um, it basically builds on Adobe, Adobe technology, Adobe's a partner. Um and it really focuses on the AEC industry, which stands for architecture, engineering, construction. It's one of the top three biggest industries in the world, you know, second to probably financial services and healthcare. Um, so Bluebeam is a software, uh, uh, global software kind of suite that uh, came out a few years ago. I came on board because it needed to revamp a little bit of its branding as well as its approach to demand gen. So as a you know as a global director, I kind of looked at um, you know what what was basically uh, the competitors and what what existed. So a lot of competitors, you know, which is not too dissimilar to a lot of B two B tech companies now, but um, but the, the competitors, other software companies in the construction space, engineering space, had a very similar tone. These very functional message. You know, we have the fastest softwares. We we provide the best optimization. It's always that type of ter- terminology. And um, and it got to a point where I, I don't know if they all just copied each other or it was a safe play or, or they were catering to a, a CMO that basically didn't want to take chances. So I went through a process of um, really uh, just um, uh, doing a lot of focus groups. And I found out in the focus groups, one of the value basically that people saw using Bluebeam was time and time saving. So, you know, just a quick background in the construction world, they're called drawing sets, but you guys probably refer to them as blueprints, right? 
blueprints have to be modified on paper, or they, they were traditionally modified on paper by mechanical engineers and civil engineers and architects and HVAC uh, engineers, as uh, well as, you know, um, you know, interior designers, versions of these blueprints and how they mark them up, you know, just pages and pages and pages in time, you know, to do one floor of about 5,000 square feet office floor, the amount of paper and time, it would take about five or six months to measure all the markups and changes before construction started, really. So, or when construction first started. So when Bluebeam came out, they digitized the whole thing. So a six month kind of process of all the markups is called a markup stage, could actually be done in three days. So it's a huge thing. So people can go home at night, and this is the feedback I got from the user groups, people could be at dinner by five o'clock. People don't have to work on the weekends. They wouldn't have to carry papers and papers. You probably see pictures of architects with rolled paper underneath their arm. That was the classic image, right? And and rightfully so, because of all the different markups and that they had to manage, right? Bluebeam provided that software suite that digitized the whole thing, that different various groups and all over the world can go in there and make changes quickly and they could track the changes. They can, you know, they they don't have to communicate through phone about what was changed or not. I mean, nothing that like that. So so the focus groups basically said. It provides less risk. I mean, well, what it is is Bluebeam provides, it mitigates risk. It actually um, saves time and basically prevents errors. And I said, okay, great. Those are functional things, but what does it do for you? And so they said, well, we can get home at night. We could be home by five. We could have dinner. We can play with our kids. We'd have a life. Um, and so then I realized when we started doing the focus group and the research that we created a campaign called the Clarity Campaign, which I wrote the copy for. So the enemy is confusion. The savior is clarity. So what we did was we didn't go out to the market and say, this is what Bluebeam is, and this is what the technology is and the functional benefits. But instead, what we did was we tried to project an image or a vision to a prospective customer of what their company could look like by using our technology, how their lives can change. So in a sense, we weren't basically selling them just, you know, if you look at a horseback riding example, we're not selling them the saddle. We're selling them the whole lifestyle of basically horseback riding, you know, being part of a ranch and being part of a club and buying the clothes and doing the social things and jumping events. We were selling the vision of the lifestyle. So so what Bluebeam did was for the Clarity campaign was um, we're no, we can tell you left and right all day long what the functional benefits of this is, but we're going to stand out and make ourselves defensible and unique by saying this is the type of company company you can transform uh, yourself to be uh, if you use this software. And what that looks like is you're you know there's less errors, less risk, less lawsuits, um, uh, less confusion. You're Employees are happy. They could be home by five o'clock. We just casted also, a vision, if you will. Five, yeah. not working on weekends. They're cold. Yeah, all that stuff. And, and we the casted the vision, and it was it was a hit. It's still happening right now. Like, mm -hmm. like still happening. I mean, that's the purpose of the podcast. I mean, it's called B to boring because I mean, chances <laughs> a lot, a lot of B two B marketing is still boring. And my, like yeah. my, my space at MRP, and there are at least four or five B two B 
demand or intent vendors who use the word precision. Oh, and optimization. That's used a lot too. Precision. It's precision. It's like, like, okay, we get it. Straight lines, precision. Great. Everybody's website looks the same. Everybody's, you know, so like, again, for me, I, I, I absolutely, and it's baffling that you're, we're still talking, having the same conversation, just talking about like, I've said this to my team many times, right? No one wants to know what we do, right? Everybody wants to know what's in it for them. Yeah. In every type of marketing, everybody's like, what's in it for me? If you can't answer that, with the message you're putting out in front of them, sales or marketing, you failed yeah. because it's yeah. in, in a race because then you're just feature racing, right? Who has the most features? And then it comes down to who has the most funding, who has the bigger dev team, who can crank out features faster, faster, faster until there's no more features. And then the renewal stop and the industry plops off the table because mm-hmm. you know, like, so then guess where we're at now in 2023 is that, right? Yeah. Funding yeah. The funding slows, the features slow, and the sellers and marketers are like, "Wow, what do I do? I can't talk mm-hmm. about the future." So, yeah. Uh, but but really- the good news is, there's a lot of research from Deloitte, Gartner, LinkedIn, B2B Institute. They're busy saying, like, "Look, creating an emotive message to stand out because these people are still human beings will make a difference in your brand and make a difference ultimately in your sales and demand gen." That message is now being called out to the rooftops, I think, by so many different companies. I'm hoping a lot of B2B CMOs and these different things are basically taking that to heart, but yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, that's amazing. I mean, really, really killer example just because it's something we're still going through, right? Which is, you know, yeah. so if, if there's one marketer who listens, you know, today who says, wow, I'm still, why am I, why do I look like everyone else? Why are we still doing <laughs> the boring stuff, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And with Bluebeam, the great thing about that particular campaign was we backed it up. It's like, you know, we can change your life. You know, and, you know, obviously your work life affects your personal life. And sometimes your personal life affects your work life. There's, it's life, right? At the end of the day, we basically backed up that campaign with, here's a full suite software suite for you for 30 days, free trial. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't believe us? Do a free, you know, 30-day free trial. And we played with 14-day, 9-day, 30-day uh, free trial. We actually found out that actually, oddly enough, the, the free trial numbers that were the lowest actually performed the best because we find out we found out through surveys is is since they know it's only going to be for seven day free trial for instance they only use the crap out of that free trial for that seven days or six days if they have it if you give them thirty days or longer then they'll just kind of get to it later but never really engage with the software and then convert to a paid paid version but anyway all that to say is the clarity campaign worked out really well so. Well, Genesis, thanks so much. I mean, this was great, right? Tons of insight. I mean, we covered AI, we covered brand, we covered demand, we covered, you know, all of that. And I think, you know, we really appreciate the time you spent. Um, any closing thoughts? Uh, I think uh, I think with AI and transformation, I think with a brand, you know, clients that are basically wanting agencies to break down their walls and work collectively with each other and partners and things like that. The accelerant is going to be AI. Uh, automation and speed and agility is the need and the desire that a lot of clients are asking for and companies actually are asking for. I think these next three years are going to be a transformational period, as was the dot-com boom back like in the what the late 90s. That remember everybody basically put a dot-com at the end of their company, you know, their company name, you know, underwear 
nowunderwear.com or, yeah. you know, flashlight or flashlight.com. It's going to be a lot of that, um, that type of um, disruption, I guess, positive disruption. So, so yeah, just hold on to your hats, you know, your seeds for the next three years. So. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, for those listening, make sure to, uh, you know, if you enjoy, like what you hear, go to Spotify or whatever uh, platform that you listen on. Give us a solid rating. Ratings always help get us out there. Share with your friends. Share on social. Um, you can find me at Christopher Rack on LinkedIn. You can find MRP on LinkedIn as well as, as far as a couple other social channels. Genesis, where can we find you most? Yeah, Genesis Computitan, C-A-P-U-N-I-T-A-N at LinkedIn. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining. Um, it's been really a pleasure. And, uh, you know, we'll catch up again soon. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. Bye.